I don't know, I'm making a bit of a generalization, take that out, whoever's going to be editing it. But um, I don't have anything smart to say. I'm going to just retract my statement. <laughs> Sophia has fully retracted that statement. Unknown editor at this point. <laughs> Please remove that comment. <laughs> Or, even better, move it to the beginning of the podcast and we'll make fun of Sophia. (laughs) I do well with that. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and yes, podcasts on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this is, isn't a place to find answers. We suggest ringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than take the advice from some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Hello. My name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Sophia. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist at the University of Colorado in the Denver VA. I have no conflicts of interest, and I tweet at Sophia underscore kidney. You on call this weekend, Sophia? I am not, but I am on call tonight, solo without a fellow. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. Brutal. (laughs) We, uh, our condolences to the VAs, the veterans in Colorado. Hopefully uh, you make it through tonight. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hopefully I wake up if I get the call. Nyan. Yeah, hey, my name's Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. I tweet at Captain Chloride. And my only COI is that torsamide is a superior diuretic to furosemide. Excellent. And we have a special guest tonight. We have Sadia Khan. Sadia, you are here for your fourth visit on Freely Filtered. Introduce yourself, Sadia. Hi, I'm Sadia Khan. I'm a cardiologist at Northwestern in Chicago. And the fact that it's my fourth appearance means that you've somehow blocked out every other appearance to ask me back. Sadia, it's your quit wit. (laughs) Sadia, you really are a natural for these podcasts. Yeah, you're absolutely, we love having you. Well, well, that and you. you're the only cardiologist that agrees to come on, so. Right, I, maybe, maybe I should have my own sanity checked. My only conflict of interest is that you need data to say that torsamide is better than furosemide. Okay, okay, so we are already, we are already getting into it. Bobak, thanks for joining us. We know you're on call. We know it's kind of, you're going to be kind of in and out. There's actually, that's kind of a theme tonight. A lot of, a lot of us are on call. Bobak, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Bob Axiain. I'm a general cardiologist and health services researcher at UCLA and the VA Greater Los Angeles. But uh, thanks for having me back. Excellent. Excellent. I believe this is your third visit to yeah. Free Filtered. Free ice cream cone? What do I- yeah, we'll work on that. We'll it's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Quick question. Do you have any conflicts of interest with this manuscript and study? No, I'm very pro-diuretic, just naturally. <laughs> Team diuretic. <laughs> okay. Importantly, he said pro diuretic. I know, I know. I thought he was going to say pro BMP, but apparently well, pro diuretic. Well, he didn't say okay. pro torsamide or pro furosemide. He said pro diuretic. He's he's saving that because we already know torsamide is superior. <laughs> oh boy! Oh, this is good. This is going well already. 
So Fauble's law, Fauble's law states that everyone in the hospital is either on diuretics or IV fluids. This is how I open a standard lecture I give my residents and med students at my institution. From here, I argue that IV fluids and diuretics are central therapeutics and that hospital-based doctors need to have a deep understanding to be rational clinicians. The lecture then goes deep into the various loop diuretics, not to mention the differences between chlorthalidone and hydrochlorothiazide. I focus on the wildly inconsistent bioavailability of ferrosamide, making it a drug where dosing is more of a crapshoot than any kind of precision medicine. I drill down to the pharmacokinetics and how heart failure causes unremitting sodium avidity and that daily or even twice daily ferrosamide leaves large portions of the day with uncontrolled sodium and fluid retention. And if I have time, I'll even talk about Craig Brader's randomized controlled trial, open label, unfortunately, showed decreased hospitalization with torsamide and hint that a meta-analysis point to heart failure benefits with torsamide. And I did this with total conviction. I was teaching facts. This is how diuretics work. And tonight we're finding out that facts, they don't matter. This mechanistic view of medicine is just angels dancing on the head of a pin for all the body cares. Tonight's randomized controlled trial, Transform HF, takes all that knowledge about pharmacokinetics and bioavailability and says, that's nice, dear, but does it improve outcomes? Do patients do better with that fancy diuretic that you can't even get in some third world countries and Canada? And the answer is no. And I think it's a pretty clean no. This partly makes me sad because something I used to know that I thought was important to know is now just something I know, but that apparently is not that important. Oh, well, such is the way of nephrology. Okay, let's get amongst it. Sadia, you have some some non-traditional conflicts of interest. You want to share them with us? My conflicts of interest include that I am a cardiologist and commend the authors, who many of whom are my friends, for a very well-conducted trial. So, okay, so you, you, but you were not involved in this trial? I was not involved in the design or execution of this trial. Sounds like you were a reviewer. <laughs> you don't Aren't have to say reviewing? anything. <laughs> Aren't we uh, okay. doing it right now? Okay, that's right. We are doing post-publication peer review. It's a good point. Okay. <laughs> but Sadia, are you also saying then that whatever quick wit you have during this time, you're actually holding back? No, I'm just going to target it all towards nephrologists. <laughs> okay, Nyan, uh, I know I kind of sprung this on you. We were running with a skeleton crew. You want to give us a, a little bit about the uh, the methods here? What are we looking at? All right. So this Transform HF study was a pragmatic trial. So this is going to be pretty skeleton in general in terms of the methods is a randomized trial looking at the efficacy of furosemide versus torsemide in the treatment of heart failure. What's interesting already is the pre-specified hypothesis, so talk about setting yourself up for failure, was that torsemide would reduce all-cause mortality by 20% compared to furosemide. That sounds like a pretty big ask, a 20% reduction in mortality for a drug in the same class, can you think of? Can anybody here think of another dr another two drugs in the same class that resulted in that kind of improvements in outcomes? They cite some like meta-analysis of small studies, right? To that's right. Yeah, that's how they that's how they arrived at that number, which to me is like ACE inhibitor versus placebo in heart failure. So I'm I'm curious right. why they would have picked this number. What was the difference with the carvedilol and metoprolol? Was that Meteor? Is that 
That's a heart failure trial, right? Um, Dang, you stumped the cardiologist, Joel. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Well, on top of that, I don't know any trial that has shown that type of benefit in acute decompensated heart failure. So I think the bar was not only really high to compare two drugs in the Comet. same class. It was Comet. <laughs> I, missed, I had the wrong <laughs> celestial body. It was not yeah. Meteor. It was Comet. The bar was really high to compare two drugs in the same class and expected a difference. But on top of that, to have that high a benefit in a group of patients that were hospitalized for decompensated heart failure. There has never been a trial that has shown that any therapy has been beneficial in patients with acute decompensated heart failure who have the highest mortality rate in the next year after that hospitalization. I'm sorry, there's, we, have, we have no trial that showed a benefit in outcomes following in, admission for well, decompensated... What about, what about impulse? What about That's the, exactly uh, what I was thinking Except for Flozens. It remains undefeated. They stand alone. (laughs) Yeah, but until Flozens came along, there had not been a trial in hospitalized heart failure patients. Bobek, correct me if I'm wrong, but Everest, astronaut, there have been really a slew of trials that have tried to look at this. And they've targeted HEFREF, and this trial included all patients with any type of heart failure that were hospitalized. But Sophia, am I right about that? About a third of the patients were enrolled while they were in the hospital? It says eligible patients were hospitalized for heart failure. Yeah, that was our... I, yeah, I, I remember wait, wait, I thought they no, had to 30, be hospitalized. Yes. No, yeah. no. 30% yeah. had a new diagnosis of heart failure. 34 right. to 35% had hospitalized, yeah. hospitalization heart within heart the past year. It's hospitalization within the last year. All yeah. of them had to be hospitalized no, no, no. within the la- for at least 24 Thank hours you. to be to Joel, make it into wrong. the study. I'm, okay, I'm wrong. So, Sadi, do say that a little louder so I can... Joel, you're wrong about everything. <laughs> <laughs> she really took that stick. and ran with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to stick, I'm gonna stick yeah. with the assistant, assistant professor. <laughs> I think that's good for me. <laughs> it's just a construct, Joel. Okay, okay. Wrong about everything. Rolling from there. Okay, so everybody Except was admitted and... are the best. Flozens are the best, but that's true. the only thing that's ever been shown to reduce outcomes in patients hospitalized for heart failure. And these guys said, no, no, we're going to get a 20% difference with two different drugs in the same class. That's bold. Go big or go home. They were confident in torsamide. It sounded a lot like Nan, really. Not for a 20%. (laughs) You have a better chance of predicting a a perfect March Madness bracket than this trial being positive at 20%. (laughs) I take it you had Princeton in your uh, bracket? I had Furman. Does that does You that did. Help? Oh, yeah. That's a, who, that has helps. Every, who, who has that Northwestern helps. going all the way? I'd, I have Northwestern going down the first round. Well, you be, suck, and I'm about I, to leave to go watch the game. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough, Sadi. Uh, <laughs> Sadi, do you have them going all the way? I just want to just clarify. Is that, yeah, did you absolutely. submit it right? Well yeah. done. Okay. But that becomes like whimsical selections, right? Because you're suddenly like just selecting Northwestern because they're your favorite. It's, is it really from a quality of team perspective? It's from a loyalty perspective. That insane pick has a better chance of coming true <laughs> than this study showing a 20% difference in mortality between loop diuretics. I'll bet I get a perfect, perfect um, score on my Neff Madness this year. Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling very good about my neck madness bracket. All right, so we talked about this a little bit. To be eligible for the trial, patients had to have been hospitalized for at least 24 hours because of worsening of chronic heart failure or a new diagnosis of heart failure, and then had to meet one of two criteria: either a left ventricular ejection fraction of 
less than or equal to 40% within 24 months prior to that hospitalization or an elevated natriuretic peptide level during the index hospitalization. Okay. Our, our cardiologist thoughts on this, the, those, those criteria for enrolling the patient in a heart failure study. Uh, Sadia already mentioned she was concerned about taking the combination of reduced and preserved ejection fraction, just raising the bar for showing a difference. I will say from the aspect of generalizability, it makes a lot of sense to say, let's include all patients that are being hospitalized with heart failure so that we can make a statement at the end of the study about how to manage patients who are coming in congested. Anything to add there, Bobek? No, I think I, I agree that by mixing in the HEFPEF, and this is a time where you, we haven't had trials to show benefit until the Flozin's uh, on an outcome. So it's pretty bold to think that the choice of diuretic is going to suddenly improve these hard outcomes. So I, I agree with Sadia on that. And then shouldn't we also just highlight that a fairly large percentage of them had acute newly diagnosed heart failure? So these patients are coming in not on some of the goal-directed therapy, and that's clearly going to, just starting them on those medications as well, it's going to impact their their trajectory and, and really how they respond to diuretics. So they are seemingly another population, correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, if you're talking about a lot of these patients were diuretic naive, you may not think of seeing the difference that you usually clinically might decide to use terosamide in. Well, not only diuretic naive, but maybe RAS inhibitor di- naive, yeah. beta blocker naive, and the other well, medications. Luckily, oh, over half the patients finished the trial still ACE inhibitor naive. Yeah. <laughs> luckily or unluckily. Although I will say that that's very consistent with the distribution seen in other trials for acute decompensated heart failure, where the overall distribution is about a third of patients coming in with de novo heart failure. So they're typically included in these studies. Yeah. Okay. And here you're going to get all the patients with preserved ejection fraction who aren't going to get guideline-directed medical therapy, right? They're not going to be on RAS inhibitors and, well, maybe SGLT2 inhibitors. But We'll talk about it in the results. And all these problems that we're talking about, these are things that are going to decrease the ability to show a difference, but these are things that are not going to decrease the validity of whatever they're, I guess, well, I guess it is going to decrease the validity, but it doesn't bias the study in, in an unfair way. Is that fair to say? These are criticisms of, uh, of things that are going to decrease the power of the study. Yep. But other than that, there are choices that you could make and they're not, they're not necessarily bad choices. I think it's the choice of answering a generalizable question, which is what the investigators were prioritizing here in this pragmatic study, compared with answering a targeted question in a very clean trial population. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. What do you you got? So to round out, again, pragmatic trials, so we can round out inclusion criteria, which is pretty broad. So we already mentioned the main things and that they just had to be adult patients with a plan for daily outpatient oral loop diuretic regimens after hospital discharge and an anticipated need for long-term loop diuretic use. The exclusion criteria, end-stage kidney disease requiring kidney replacement therapy, any LVAD, or if they predicted you would need an LVAD within three months or implanted less than three months, pregnant or nursing women, malignancy or other non-cardiac condition that would limit life expectancy to less than a year, and then known hypersensitivity to furosemide, torsemide, or related loop diuretics. The recruitment period was 
2018 to 2022 that may or may not impact certain medications that patients were given. And then follow-up was through 30 months for death and 12 months for hospitalization. The intervention in this case was during the index admission, participants were then randomized one-to-one to receive either torsamide or furosemide as their diuretic treatment strategy prior to discharge. Whether we agree with it or not, this dose conversion was one milligram of torsamide for every two or four milligrams of oral furosemide. Yeah, they said they didn't really know what the ratio was. They said that from studies that some studies say it's a one to four and the other one says it's one to two. What, what do you guys use? I use a one to two when I make conversions. But this is all based on the fact that the bioavailability of furosemide is so unpredictable, which is why torsamide is a superior diuretic in general. But we, I don't think we know. Except in this trial. but Except for, except for this randomized control trial. Sonny, what do you use torsamide at all? I don't even know what that is. What is, what you don't is know tar- what? Really? Okay. Oh, oh, I see where we're going there. <laughs> Sophia, do you use torsamide? Do they have that available to VA? Yeah, we use it regularly, but I mean, I think we use it probably 50-50. depends on the patient, the comfort of the primary team, the comfort of my fellow. And when you make that conversion, what kind of ratio do you use between One to two. Torsamide? One to two. Bobak, what do you use? Yeah, we use it. I think probably furosemide is most commonly prescribed, followed by Bumex and then Turosemide. And we do a, usually for our resistant patients or something, two to one conversion. Two to one. So everybody here who heard of Torsemide uses two to one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then uh, go on. Naya, I got nothing else. Put that at I the really beginning. Really that was, that wait, was, wait, that was brilliant. <laughs> Sadie, you got something? Has Joel ever been speechless during a podcast? I try I try I try not to. It's uh yeah. Wait, so they were randomized to oral furosemide or torsemide? Correct. Should we have an mm-hmm. oral versus IV debate about hospitalized patients with heart failure? This is this is at discharge. It's when you this go. This was home. at discharge. Yeah. So they're decongested, they're presumably uvolemic, and they're putting them on a maintenance therapy. Are they decongested? We have no idea. We don't know. Presumably, if they're being discharged. They're being discharged. Yes, I I had some patients in this trial. Our, Our site was a recruiting site. I wasn't the site PI, but what happens is the patients under my care... If they were being, if they were admitted for heart failure, and if they were being discharged, and they met the inclusion exclusion criteria, they would they would contact me first if, as a courtesy. It wasn't part of the protocol to be like, "Would you mind if this patient is included in our trial?" And you know, I usually said yes. I didn't have a, uh, I didn't think either way. And then they would fall, before they get their meds at the pharmacy before leaving, they would try to give them the study, assign them to Rosemite or Friosemite based on the randomization protocol. So extremely pragmatic. But Bobek, I got a question. If you said, I do mind, would they ignore that and still randomize the patient? I'm just curious. Like, yeah. did, was that just courtesy and, and that they would ignore what you said or would they then? Yeah, it was just our site PI. We'd like to know if their patients are being randomized to a study, even though this is a minimal risk type of study. They continued that practice of, of letting us. But within the study protocol, they didn't ask for primary attending Blessing. Permission. Yeah. Right. So there wasn't a, there wasn't an opportunity for you to say, actually, I don't have equipoise in this patient. I think our site PI, if I said, no, this patient, I, you know, 
doesn't want to change meds, I don't think he'd be good. They would um, exclude him they from the trial. Exclude them patient. Yeah. Okay. And as the treating physician, were you the one that then decided the, the dose, dose of torsamide or furosemide once you knew no, we, they were randomized? We would, we would put in what we thought our discharge dose of diuretics should have been, and then the study would decide on the conversion. So I actually don't know what, our, what, conver- what conversion they were using or if Got they were it. consistently doing two to one or four to one. Oh, that is interesting. Got okay. It. And that data okay. isn't, I mean, that would be interesting if they had that data, but what their conversion was. They hint that there will be future publications where they will go deep into that data because they're, oh, okay. you know, because they're good have, academics, unlike myself. I bet they're all professors of medicine and they want to get many <laughs> papers out of this. <laughs> I feel like there's gotta, a recurring theme here, but I, I think part of their <laughs> rationale was that they wanted to let the clinicians who were taking care of the patients make that choice. And so that's why they provided a range because it was a recommendation or guidance but ultimately, the person who's discharging the patient should decide what their standing dose to go home with should be. I'm also curious, who right. were the clinicians? Were they primary? Were they the primary medicine team? Were they cardiologists? Who was making those determinations? Who was determining that they were decongested? Apparently it was Bobak. <laughs> At one <laughs> facility, perhaps. Did you follow these patients in clinic as well? Or see any of these patients in clinic? In the study? Yeah. I don't recall seeing him in clinic. I'm just wondering if there was anything that came down from the study requesting patients stay on whatever diuretic they were randomized to. It, it looks like everything was at the discretion of the treating physician. There was a lot of crossover, yeah. which we'll get to. But At least in the VA, you see research notes and that they were assigned. But I think if I saw that they were in the study, I would probably try to avoid switching it for, for you know, if I didn't have a good reason. Sure. Gotcha. Sure. Uh, so we're, is that, we're done with the intervention. Is that right? We're mostly done with the intervention. And then after discharge, any change in dose and frequency was at the discretion of the patient's outpatient clinicians. And then participants were basically contacted by phone at intervals of 30 days, six months, and 12 months after discharge. Uh, If you go on the supplement, there is pre-specified patients that were contacted more frequently. Early patients versus kind of patients in the middle of the trial versus later in the trial were perhaps contacted more frequently. The primary outcome that we we talked about was all-cause mortality and a time-to-event analysis. And there was a number of secondary outcomes, including all-cause mortality or all-cause hospitalizations over 12 months, total hospitalizations over 12 months, and all-cause mortality or all-cause hospitalizations over 30 days. In terms of their outcomes, I, you know, I think the theory that prior to this study, we had strong feelings that chorosomide might be more reliable. Before this trial, there was this belief that terosamide was going to be more efficacious, more reliable, better uh, fluid management, maybe more aggressive. And so the idea that you could reduce rehospitalization, where we have studies like Champion, where if you have a, a MEMS device put into the PA catheter, those patients end up getting more aggressive diuresis, and you do show a reduction in rehospitalization with interventions that tend to keep people maybe more euvolemic. So I think for the composite, and it's pragmatic, so like patient cares about, you know. Just a question about, is it the champion trial that showed an improvement with the MEMS device? Yeah. And there's been some controver- controversy about, is it just the MEMS device or was it the increased attention brought about by the team who protocolized how to use the device? So the patients who got the device got far more touches and did get more diuretic 
up titrations compared to the control group. And what about, um, did they, were they looking at um, heart admissions for heart failure or was it total admissions? Because I thought, I mean, I rarely heart see failure. an out. Yeah. yeah. And that was the thing that I, that I thought was different about the study. I've rarely seen just total admissions being an outcome. I've seen mm. you know, total mortality, certainly, but total admissions was uh, like a new one for me. Well, when it's pragmatic, that means that you may not have the best specificity with assessing and doing, getting access to the charts and reviewing them and adjudicating them through some protocol that because it's all-cause mortality, all-cause hospitalization, those, those endpoints are going to be easier to capture. Absolutely. And I, I think the other point that's important about the use of all-cause mortality is that this was an open-label trial. So clinicians and patients knew which arm they were on. And so part of the reason to choose all-cause mortality, as bold as it might have seemed, was that there's less bias there, too. You can hospitalize someone when oh, you're trying to decide, do sure. they need to be in the hospital or not, But you, and you know which arm they're in. So I think that's a really important point about why they chose all-cause mortality. Nice. But yeah, getting back, getting back to the, to the HEFPEF issue, like if you look at... Emperor Preserved, a criticism brought up is that despite it showing a reduction in heart failure-specific hospitalization, those were only 20% of the readmissions in that population. Uh, 80% were for other causes uh, that were non-heart failure-related. Interesting. Interesting. Heart failure patients are pretty sick. Yeah, well, if you have HEFPEF, you tend to be older, you tend to have other issues, you know, you're, you're at high risk for coming back for a UTI or other things that aren't related maybe to volume status. Sadia, you had something? Oh, yes. I just want to point out that Northwestern did win tonight, 75-67, for whoever <laughs> said that it was insane that they might be the tournament champion this year. Well, they're, 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 the, the first thing to do, if you want to win the tournament, you need to win your first round game. So they've done that. And they may still keep doing that. 100% of tournament champions have won their first round game. That is correct. <laughs> We'll, de we'll, develop a, we'll develop a risk model to predict. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is a sensitive marker for tournament champions. It is not a specific one, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a 132 odds. <laughs> okay. Okay. Congratulations, Northwestern Wildcats. You guys are on a roll. That was a that was a uh, was that a nine over an eight beat? Was that right? Were they a, a nine seed or were they an eight seed? They're a seven seed beat a ten seed. Excuse me. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> seven seed. Show them the, show, so show them the respect they deserve. You know, as a seven seed, they cannot be a Cinderella. That's true. That's okay. They they, they were they were favored in at least one game. Okay, great. Welcome to sports talk. <laughs> Friendly Filter, the world's worst sports podcast. That's right. Nyan, <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? That's mostly it. I can talk about statistical analysis, but to be honest, I was going to have Swap draw me a picture with crayons because that's a better way for me to understand it than trying to read what they did here. Now, Bobak's good at statistical sure. analysis. Sure. What do you want to talk about? So, Bobak, you read the study? Yeah. The main, was there the anything main, interesting in the statistics? No, it seems straightforward. They're very oh, specific. I do have a question. Yeah. What about this post hoc analysis with the fine and gray, looking yeah. at competing risk model and took into other accounts or factors like age, sex, baseline yeah. injection fraction, and that changed the post hoc analysis results? Because yeah, so it showed torsamides a superior 
diuretic for re rehospitalization. <laughs> wait, 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 slow down. That sounds like a result. So I'm going to want to hear about that when we get to the results. What, what was going on here? So first, first, the statistical analysis is a standard Cox regression on their composite outcome. So the primary endpoint is time to event. They put their significance at 0.05. And then they did some other things where they looked at all-cause hospitalization, all-cause rehospitalization, and they did a, is it a 12 months? But that, that one's a negative binomial. So that's a, a count distribution model. And then the fine gray has to do with repeated measures. So usually when we do a study, it's always the first endpoint that, that matters in the treatment effect because it's easier to, it makes more sense to analyze it that way. And you don't have to deal with the problem of clustered events happening m- multiple times within certain high-risk patients. But if you do want to look at those repeated hospitalizations and account for them, you need a competing risk model. So the fine gray is a way of handling, well, let's look at, did people, you count all the hospitalizations. So the first one counts, the second one counts, third and fourth, those all count and contribute if they're within the same patient, but it, it adjusts for sort of that clustering of risk uh, in a statistically sound way. So Bob, Bobak, would you say this is like a legit analysis, like post hoc analysis and something like this? Yeah, the MitroClip trials looked at repeated admissions for heart failure hospitalization. So it was a procedural thing for heart failure patients with severe MR. And they use a repeated measures model as their primary outcome. I think it uses a fine, I forget if it was fine gray or some sort of competing risk model. So this secondary outcome exploratory, because it wasn't powered for this to detect this, is saying that uh, when you account for the a number for all the hospitalizations, the repeat hospitalizations, uh, there's a trend for benefit for trosamide. There's a benefit, a modest benefit there. And it's also adjusting for the baseline patient factors. So had they decided that would have been a better primary analysis, it could have been a positive trial. Why, why wouldn't they have decided to do that? I mean, that seems like it would make sense. Yeah, I think I've said this on other podcasts, but it's always better to adjust for baseline covariates in randomized studies because it improves your power and you get better ability to detect a treatment effect. As long as you're not having violations of randomization or other biases introduced, uh, you improve measurement clarity. So you can do that. And then, I mean, the primary outcome, was their event rate much lower than what was expected? I, I thought it was fine, wasn't their it? Vi- their event rate was higher than they expected. High, yeah. they, it was higher. Yeah, yep. it was twice as yeah. high. They ended up having, they, they enrolled half the number of people they anticipated because it was a outcome-driven trial. Yeah. I know but, we're stepping all over Sophie's results. Yeah, they ended up enrolling half the population they expected to. Yeah, so you, if you include the repeated measures, then you're getting a lot more more events. But it may it may indicate that the terosamide was crazy. Was, how was crazy enrolling patients in the middle of a pandemic resulted in more people dying. Amazing. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> but they they corrected for that. They tried to control for that, and there wasn't a difference. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, terosamide no better for COVID than terosamide. <laughs> All right. Fair. So torsamide is also not superior compared to furosemide for treating COVID. In addition to heart failure. In addition to heart failure, other things torsamide doesn't do well is treat COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Diane, are we done with the the methods? I hope so. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> How about this? We are done with the methods. <laughs> Sophia, do we have any results? We do. We actually have results. Okay. 2,859 patients were identified. And then, and remember, they were going for 6,000 patients, right? That was their goal. 1,431 were randomized to torsamide. 1,428 were randomized to the furosemide group. And then there was um, some degree of withdrawal, about 50 withdrew from the torsemide group and 60 withdrew from the furosemide group. From a characteristic perspective, it was a fairly diverse population. 37% were women and 34% were of black race. Approximately 70% of participants did have an ejection fraction of less than 40% and 24% an ejection fraction greater than 50%. The median levels of the NT-ProBNP and BNP were 3,900 and 950 respectively. A third of the participants had chronic kidney disease with a mean GFR of 59. 67% were on prior loop diuretic. Approximately 50% of those were on furosemide and 10% were on torsemide, and the remainder were on bumetanide. 40% were on an ACE inhibitor. 35% were on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. Hold on. I can't remember my number for secubitril-valsartan. It's about 19%. 18, 19, yeah. 18 to 19% on entresto pretty good population were on the beta blocker, about 78 to 80%. And then a whopping 6%, which is reflective of the sort of the duration of the study, were on a sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitor. 30% had a new diagnosis of heart failure. And approximately 35% had heart failure hospitalization within the past year. I don't know if we want to pause and talk about anything. We already sort of yapped our jaws about it for a little bit. I was going to say, I thought the cool part was the number of women and non-white participants in the trial. I thought that was more than other heart failure trials. I don't know if that's true or not, but it struck me as more diverse than usual usual trials I read with a yeah. bunch of white men. Yeah, I don't know. And I, I don't think there was any like oversampling in their recruitment, right? They didn't try to be more representative or... I don't believe so. And then the other thing I was surprised with was like, We've seen more heart failure trials, with the, especially when they're in North America, that the median age tends to be higher. So this seemed 65. This seemed relatively young, young to you. Interesting. For a North American population. but So what about the ACE inhibitors or RAS inhibition representation? 40%, 35%. Is that representative of what you guys see in typical heart failure studies well, or is it low? I mean, it does oh, have thirty percent of a new diagnosis of heart failure. So yeah, I was going to say that, that we were talking about a third of the patients didn't really have an opportunity to get started on these medications prior. And yeah, in the subset and like twenty five percent have half PAF. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they mm -hmm. actually said in the subset with half RAF, RAS inhibition, so either ACE, ARB, or RNA was sixty eight percent. Oh, that sounds quite good. Yeah, that's a big and deal. They, and they didn't not combine, in table one. They didn't combine the. Ace Arb Arnie into one line for you to get the total. Yeah, not in table one. It's in the. I don't know why they wouldn't put that in table one. Brass inhibition. Why do we need just ACE inhibitors? Well, they, they put Arnie separate. So that's just that, that you just add that you don't think those Arnie patients are also included in the Arb population. I don't think they are. No, shouldn't be, right? Yeah. So you could just add those in. But yeah, it would be nice to have one line or, I get, or put them together at least. <laughs> mm. 
Anything else remarkable about Table 1 to anybody? I think the other thing that's helpful to take a look at is that this is not necessarily representative of the distribution we see in hospitalized heart failure, which is pretty much 50% half puff. And I think goes to Bobak's comment too about it being a relatively younger population than we would have thought. And it may be because we're skewing towards half breath more than we would for a generalized hospitalized population. Okay. So take home message from table one. This is a diverse population that seems to underrepresent preserved heart failure, at least in terms of hospitalized patients. But that probably was a good thing in terms of trying to see it, trying to generate an effect. And population tends to be younger and is certainly more diverse than we typically see in heart failure patients. Fair summary? Then we and see in heart failure trials. Excuse me. That we. I'm sorry. That's exactly it. It is a more diverse population than we see in heart failure trials, probably more representative of the heart failure population at large. I don't know. Anything else important? No. That sounds good. Is that true, though, that you would skew your thinking so if you have more heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, that's more likely to see benefit? I don't think that's true. You don't true. think so. Okay. I almost think it's – I think it's maybe neutral if not less because now they're going to get GDMT. Right, because so, so many of the trials have been effective for preserved ejection fraction. You're right. We would want to have a lot of them salted into our <laughs> trial. Good good call there, Nyan. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> Sophia, what do we what do we got going? Okay. 90% of patients with the known prescription status at hospital discharge were taking their assigned loop diuretic. At discharge, 7% were switched from torsamide to furosemide and 3.8% switched from furosemide. What's that? That 90% number is at what time were they still on their prescribed drug? I understood it and I could be wrong. I might have to go back to it, but I think it was on discharge. They lost 10% of the patients before they walked out the door of the hospital. <laughs> I just want to make sure I got that. Okay. Sophia, I read the same thing and that's what I thought it said also. And I okay. was like, boy, that's that's not a great, that's not an auspicious start. <laughs> Sadia, do you have some thoughts? Well, I was just going to say by month one, the known loop diuretic status was 72%. But when they say of the patients with known prescription status at discharge from the index hospitalization was only 96.4%. What happened to the other 3.6% of patients? Maybe they got, maybe they didn't pick up their meds or they went to they some other pharmacy. And... Yeah. I mean, these are, these are just this people. A bad start. This is a bad start for this, this Does trial. Does it mean that they were actually able to effectively confirm it was like pills in hand? I think this is the pragmatic approach though, right? Yeah. The site involvement was very limited after it's enrollment. A, it's a light touch. It's a light touch. They were yeah. enrolled. They were assigned a drug. Maybe they got it. Maybe they didn't. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the patient has to sign a consent and then they have to wait for their meds to be processed. So maybe if someone leaves early. Their Uber is honking at the yeah. door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are real life things we deal with, but now it's in the study. Okay. So, uh, the adherence numbers are rather impressive to the extent that I don't believe it, but I, I guess this is what you get when you are calling people. So, by 30 days, 7% were no longer taking any loop diuretic. And at six months, 9%, excuse me, 9.5% were no longer taking their loop diuretic. That's any diuretic. Any That's diuretic. Any, loop, any diuretic. They were like, I'm done. And then they, they get cured. more granular, 7.5%. Or their physician, I think, I think if you de it as an outpatient, 
provider. Yeah, Maybe that, that's right. That may have been that may have been under doctor's were, orders to stop the diuretic. Yeah, they're done. Yeah, they recovered their EF or you know. That's right. It was a cox. It was coxsacky all the time. <laughs> they got put on a flozen, which is they what they should have put on before. But that's such a low percentage to of patients that are not taking their loop diuretics that are prescribed, right? I mean, we expect. At- I mean, these were all patients in the hospital with symptoms of volume overload, so you would hope that they would continue taking it. I think. Well, what is the outpatient adherence rate to? I think it depends on your population. I'm not sure if there would be a good registry study. I don't know if. And get with the guidelines, we always have like uh, the GDMT rates, but they don't really have, I don't know if they've estimated the diuretic rates. So there's a reference there to um, supplement three, E table six in supplement three. Would, would anybody take a look at E table six in uh, supplement three? Is, that, is there anything interesting in that? It's just the logs of yeah. by month. Yeah, each, each month, what was, if they know their, their status, whether it was crossover if they died. Well, I mean, we do have to take into account that if you're calling somebody and talking to them, to them on the phone, the reliability of them telling you whether or not they're taking a drug or not is not very good, or you can't necessarily. Yeah. So they're, they're not looking at fill rates. Um, you know, in the VA, you can look at people, whether they're refilling their medications, they're just going on self-report, it looks like. Okay. Uh, so there was a little bit of crossover, 8% in the torsamide arm, 55 in the furosemide arm at 30 days. Discharge dose um, from a furosemide equivalent perspective was identical between the two, 79 milligrams. Essentially 80 milligrams. That's daily dose. Is that mm-hmm. what that is? Mm-hmm. And then at one month, the torsamide furosemide equivalent was 78, and the furosemide was a little bit lower at 68 milligrams. So somebody was backing up on the furosemide dose, whereas not much change on the torsamide. Okay, so getting to the primary outcome, which was all cause. How were they deci- How were they deciding the difference? Was it wh- what conversion factor were they using? The conversion was done by the study. But the conversion and was done by the study. What did they use? Yeah, right. So the, yeah, so the, the the physician said you need twenty milligrams of torsamide. It says but two the, to one. The study reports it in. Oh, it's two to one. Oh, okay. got it. Two to one. Sorry, so where did that four asking. come in? I thought it was. That I thought was it was just either for the clinicians. The clinicians okay. were that was given the guidance a little bit for the more. clinicians versus the, the guidance. Animals. Gotcha. Got it. Thank. Got it. Okay. Two to Pragmatic one. Pragmatic trial guidance. Very. Very. I'm picking pragmatic. up. I'm picking up what you're throwing down. <laughs> <laughs> that Northwestern one tonight. Hey. <laughs> so, so did so did Duke. Duke was a winner tonight. You know, I, I have to Beating say this Oral Roberts. I, there aren't that many games that I can say this for. So I got to soak it's it been in. Right a, now. It's been a rough. It's rough <laughs> being a Northwestern fan. We get that. Yeah, no doubt. You, you take this one to the bank. This is a win. Not like torsamide against Fort Furosamide. That's right. Well, torsamide's more like torsamide's more like the Oral Roberts of, of diuretics. <laughs> Uh, primary outcome, Sophia. Okay, to our primary outcome. Are which... the Buffaloes in the tournament this year? The Colorado Buffs? I don't know. I don't pay attention to this. Fair enough. I don't okay. believe so. <laughs> <laughs> we have a negative on the Colorado <laughs> Buffaloes. Okay, <laughs> just checking. Uh, all right, the primary outcome, which was oh, all like, you're cause... UCLA though, right? 
Yeah, we're we're playing. You're playing tonight. Just started, I think. So I, I, I stopped go. participating. I'm watching the game. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Roll with that. So, Sadia's back. We're good. <laughs> Sophia, sorry. Okay, so all cause mortality, which was our primary outcome, was nearly identical for the groups: twenty six point one and twenty six point two percent. Secondary outcomes, which include Wait, can all- we go back to mortality for a second? Did anybody see this that they one of the ways they ascertained mortality was grave markers? What? So somebody's walking around somebody's walking around to different cemeteries looking at gravestones. Like somebody explain this to me. Where's Maybe this? they can't like reach them and they go try and identify their in the paper, in the in the in the paper, in the main body of the paper under data sources, where it says outcomes were ascertained by multiple data sources, one of them is grave markers. Wow, that's like commitment, really. We totally want to get a grave marker assessor (laughs) on Freely Filtered. What medical student got assigned walk around to every cemetery? I can't imagine that. It's pragmatic. They didn't have the budget for that. (laughs) Maybe there's certain, um, maybe they considered a grave marker if like, like VA often has like uh, cemetery benefits. If maybe they could go into their local cemetery database and see if anyone would popped up in there. But on a serious note, one in four patients died over the 17-month median follow-up. So in under two years, one in four people yeah. died. Yeah, that's, not, that's striking. I mean, heart failure is uh, seriousness is a cancer diagnosis. So it's later in life, uh, you have adverse outcomes. I did a study locally, and at six months, 10% of our patients had died. Uh, and I, I don't think I'd appreciated the rate at which our heart failure patients are dying. But yeah, I think that it, this is true. And you could argue that maybe it's higher because it's in the midst of COVID. But again, among patients hospitalized for heart failure, this number is not that far off. Yeah. Of note, it was twice the speed of outcomes that the uh, investigators expected. They were surprised at how fast those outcomes were accumulating. Yeah, but they didn't. They don't have anything on the cause of death and how much COVID deaths contributed because this is a higher risk group for COVID deaths. It is okay. Secondary outcomes. So our secondary outcomes, just as a reminder, were number one: all cause mortality or all cause hospitalizations over twelve months. Two total hospitalizations over 12 months or three all-cause mortality or all-cause hospitalizations over 30 days. At 12 months, secondary outcome of the composite all-cause mortality or all-cause hospitalizations occurred in 47.3%. The torsamide group and 49.3% in the furosemide group, still non-statistical. And then 37.5% in the torsamide group and 40.4% in the furosemide group experienced a hospitalization, which was also not statistic. I'm a co-signer on the you shouldn't use statistically significant in, in manuscript. So you, you should co-sign too, so you don't have to say it anymore. Not significant. I'm co-signing <laughs> so just say, right now. Would you, the confidence intervals cross one or right. zero? The confidence no, intervals one. cross one. Yes. Hey. You can say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the effect was unchanged as well across subgroups and post-hoc analyses, including adjustments for COVID. Um, and then finally, we get to the post-hoc analysis that we talked about earlier about the fine and gray, which was looking at competing risk model, took into account the factors like age, sex, baseline ejection fraction, 
prior diuretic treatment and then taking death as a competing event into account as well. And at that point, they did see a slight trend towards um, torsamide with a hazard ratio of 0.88 and the confidence interval is 0.78 to 0.99. So maybe. But I mean, that's a better outcome to me than all-cause mortality, but maybe I'm wrong. It makes more sense. I mean, they have the total hospitalization numbers there too. So in those models, there wasn't much of a difference. But if you look at the repeated hospitalization risk included on top of the primary outcome and you adjust for baseline factors, there might be a signal for some benefit for trosamide. So I think there's a little, maybe there's a little bit for everyone, but either way, it's not a very large effect in, in making this decision between which diuretic to use. I mean, I also feel like the things that, that weren't shown, right? I mean, you're, it was set up for failure. You're not going to show this big difference, I feel like, between diuretics of the same class. We don't know, you know, at our institution, at least, a lot of these patients will make urgent appointments because they feel poorly or whatever, and diuretics are adjusted. We don't know if how and how many patients a thiazide was added as adjunctive treatment, et cetera. I think there's a lot of heart failure specific things not captured by this study. And by essence, because of the design of the study and the pragmatic nature of it, information about hospital or not hospitalization, information about really ER visits or urgent appointments or need for titration or additional therapies are really not captured here. But I think this trial can't answer every question. And so it focused on the question that they wanted to answer, which was in a pragmatic study in a generalizable group of patients who are admitted to the hospital with decompensated heart failure, does it matter which diuretic you send them home with? And it doesn't. Have you have you guys already done a freely filtered on chlorthalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide? Yeah, we haven't published it yet, but we've recorded it. Oh, okay. I mean, I think this, it's kind of interesting now we have these pragmatic trials where all these strong feelings and intuitions about bioavailability. Vi- we call them vibes, <laughs> We call them vibe, diuretic yeah. vibes. Our, yeah, our, our expertise vibes don't seem to make that large of a difference. But is it that the vibe doesn't make a difference or the dose that someone got would have made Tell a difference? Tell us more, Sadia. What are you thinking? Well, I asked the question when people were being randomized, were they truly decongested? And part of the reason was that most patients who are hospitalized with decompensated heart failure may still have extra fluid on board when they go home. And we know that that's a bad prognostic sign that patients who are not appropriately decongested end up back in the hospital sooner and have a higher mortality rate. And is the problem that it's not really whether you choose furosemide or torsemide, but how you most effectively decongest someone. And particularly thinking about adjunct diuretic therapy, someone talked about thiazides. We see a really low rate of flows and uptake here, RNA therapy for HEFREF. So I think it matters how you decongest someone and the dose of the diuretic that you're using and actually minimizing the dose of the loop diuretic is probably what's best for outcomes, but we don't have any of that information here. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of good strategies we know we can apply to improve outcomes that have come out since this trial started recruiting, but I think it's still a good question to know 
it's always been a clinical quandary of what diuretic to use and whether there really is this difference in absorption and bioavailability. And I think this trial still shows that largely it shouldn't matter that much what you're what you're using if you're there is there aren't these additional pleiotropic benefits of terosamine that are going to lead to better outcomes at one month or six months. That it's it's almost a wash in terms of what you decide to use within the drug class. There's still a lot of open questions, but I think this it's a cool way of pragmatically answering this question. And I think they kind of I think they accomplish their goals even despite the challenges. So none of us should have to know what torsamide is. So I no. can continue my ignorance. I think yeah. I, th- yeah. I think this kind of gives you a free pass to move along and say, hey, I'm just sticking with my ferrosamide and maybe yeah. bumetanide if that's not working. Thiazide I mean, combo pills. Just use them. Use them all. They're all the same. Polydiuretic. Yeah, a car gets you to the same place. Doesn't matter the the model. Doesn't matter the. A high end or not? Yeah, I'd rather have a high end car though. <laughs> and that's why I use Torsamide, the Cadillac <laughs> of diuretics. It's a BMW of for diuretics. <laughs> and that's why I'm a cardiologist. Yeah, it, this is probably just la- uh, these are the the after effects of a lot of drug lunches that we're still trying to get ourselves clean of. <laughs> <laughs> There's just too many drugs. I mean. Furosemide's what the seventeenth, eighteenth most prescribed drug in the world, and torsamide is. I believe torsamide was in the two hundreds, two hundred seventy first or something. So I'm not alone. There's a lot of people who don't know who, what torsamide is. Yeah, Swap has no idea what torsamide is. That's so, why he didn't show up. He was like, I, I don't know what this drug is. That's exactly right. Anybody have any other hot takes on this? I mean, I, I mean, I, I think this is a pretty good trial. I think it answers, just like Sadi said, it answers a question they went out to that asked. Does it make a difference in this diuretic in terms of diuretic, what you send people home on, make a difference in terms of patient outcomes? And if it does, it's subtle, difficult to detect. And certainly with their study design, they were never going to pick it. Yeah. Figure it so out. That, that, I want someone to show me a study where within the same drug class that better bioavailability and half-life make a difference in an outcome. It seems like it doesn't matter. We should stop teaching pharmacology is what, what, what this we is, learned. This is, we're looking at the end of pharmacology. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. It, it is interesting because I think, you know, that Cox paper a couple years ago took the legs out from under the sodium reabsorption issue is, and, and giving credence to torsamide as being, having a longer half-life as the effect. But there was all this stuff on torsamide and decreasing myocardial fibrosis and effects on aldosterone blockade and everything. And the bl- biologic plausibility isn't matching the outcomes. Yeah, we should go through the, the thousands of papers probably on this topic and, and rip those to shreds for Totally uh, I'm, look, I'm looking for them to be withdrawn from publication. <laughs> <laughs> and they should probably take, take away the professors. They should go back to assistant yeah. professors. Yeah. I need go some back. company down here. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody brought up the TORIC trial showing 60% mortality benefit yeah. with torsamide versus furosemide? That's what they cite. That's what the, the meta-analysis is a citation basically of the TORIC trial. From 2002, class two and three heart failure showing like a 2% absolute mortality difference. Open label. Someone should look for fraud in that study now. Well, no, I think it's just that they put flozins in the torsamide pill that they gave those patients. Oh, back then. Yeah. Back in 2002. They were, we back were in 2002. Yeah. A time they traveler. laced it with some flozins. It was a filler, a filler with apple bark. Okay. Are we all set here? Anybody have any final thoughts? We came here 
not to not to uh, complain about torsamide, but to bury it. <laughs> so bumetanide for everybody. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, we're we'll, we'll, we'll waiting yeah. for that trial, pragmatic trial on bumetanide versus furosemide. And actually, since they're equivalent, we should just do, should be bumetanide versus torsamide just to get people all riled up. Okay, time for our tubular secretions. Um, is anybody ready for their tubular secretion? What do I have to say again? So this is this is something that you've been reading, doing, interested in in the last week or two that you would like to promote to our vast, our vast international freely filtered audience. Uh, it's self promotion, right? It's uh, or or just a, a, you know something you've been something that you've been reading or watching that makes you seem cooler than you actually are. That's the whole the whole game. I feel like this is going to make me less cool. That often happens too. <laughs> Nine, you got something. Uh, nice, I do. very I'm literary. I am very literary, um, which is why Sophie's a better nephrologist. She reads nephrology. I read smut. Um, so I'm going to stay on the Louise Penny train. So that it's everyone knows I've mentioned her before as favorite author of mine. So it took me, I think, three months on hold at the library, but I finally got her new book, A World of Curiosities. I read that last month. It's really, really good. It's it's again continuing the Armand Gamache Inspector series. Uh, one of the better ones uh, in the, what, 17, 18 books that she's written at this point. And to parallel that, there's a Amazon Prime series called Three Pines, which is a show based on her book. So uh, read the book and then watch the show. And uh, where does that take place? And Three Pines is a fictional town in Canada. Do they, they have torsamide there? They do not have torsamide, and uh, is that, that's is why that a, they need is a that detective. A is that a plot, that a plot is, point? <laughs> that's probably the 19th book will be the plot. Uh, Sadia, you got something besides Northwestern winning? Yeah, Northwestern you know, if you won go tonight. That, you go with that. Um, go with that. And awesome. Ted Lasso season three is back on. Did you watch the first episode? Half of it. And then I fell asleep. Sounds great. Oh, that's not <laughs> good. Stay up for a half hour episode. <laughs> well, it, no. <laughs> To be fair, sleep is now part of American Heart Association's Life's Essential Eight for Cardiovascular Health Assessment. So I'm going to take my comment about watching TV and then make it real by being the nerd that I am and giving a shout out to AHA and their new Life's Essential Eight metric, which includes sleep. So I go to bed every night at nine o'clock, except for staying up for you guys for this. Excellent. You're lucky Excellent. I'm not asleep right now. I'm actually asleep. We're pre- we appreciate you being here, and we're sorry for sorry to Ted Lasso that he's that you're not going to be watching it because you're getting all your sleep in. Sophia, do you got something? This is a double plug. I, I'm sure you guys have all been watching The Last of Us with Pedro Pascal and uh, Bella Ramsey. I think that's who it is. Anyways, it's um, it's just, I mean, it's essentially it's on HBO, and it's a, again about a global pandemic and it destroys civilization. But it's based on it's like a dramatization of a video game. And it's really great. They just finished the first season. I really enjoyed it. But even more so is SNL did this skit and they actually decided to dramatize dramatize Mario Kart, you know, in the name of <laughs> dramatization of video games. And it does star Pedro Pascal, uh, but it is hilarious. I mean, it, it really, I haven't seen an SNL skit that I really like in a long time. And this one really cracked me up. So I recommend everybody check it out. The SNL skit on dramatization of Mario Kart. Excellent. 
freely filtered there. <laughs> Very good. Sophia. Bobak, you got something? Yeah, so the, the last book I read was a hate read. It was trying to understand why my former colleague at UCLA, Joseph Latipo, became a crazy anti-vax uh, spewer. Uh-huh. And it was an interesting read, what led him to become the person he is. But uh, Are you, are you yeah. going to follow in his footsteps? Or were you convinced? Uh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> but... Uh, the only other thing I can plug is uh, I am I'm going to our, our family's doing our first international trip, so we're going to Japan uh, for spring break. Really? I took like a year or two of Japanese in like middle school and freshman year of high school, and so, so you're ready. Oh yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> but I, I've been refreshing by doing Duolingo, and I, I've never used Duolingo before, but it's kind of addictive and fun. But I don't know if it actually gives me any skills to be able to communicate to people but i'm on like a 44 day streak and it like tells you who's like slightly above you and you try to get more points to like stay up in your rankings so you can stay in your league the gamification of, of learning language yeah. acquired yeah, that's awesome it's pretty cool very good very good that's yeah i gotta get i gotta get that to move up to associate uh, professor i'm gonna work on that <laughs> duolingo for associate professorhood <laughs> Thank you much, everybody. This, this is a cool study. I, I like this study. I think this was this felt like an answer to question pretty definitively, and it's not the way I expected it to go. But the more I kind of looked into the methods and the uh, the, the effect size that they were looking for, they, they had no hope. I still think furosemide is the pumpkin pie of diuretics. I don't even you know said what that the means. Pumpkin pie is that like a pumpkin, he said it's a pumpkin spice latte pie. or what? Yeah, it's very basic. Do you hate pumpkin? <laughs> no, you know. <laughs> You know how pumpkin pie is just, you know how pumpkin pie is just like baby food in a crust? It's just like, it's disgusting. I support that. I I don't like pumpkin pie. A lot of people love pumpkin pie. Yeah. Do you though? I know, man, you may have just made some enemies. Really? I don't know. Pumpkin pies. You're turning off the listenership. I I like (laughs) actually pecan pie. But have you actually eaten good pumpkin pie? Maybe you've never had my, good my, pumpkin pie. My wife makes a good pumpkin pie. And oh. do you like that pumpkin pie? No. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, that was a test. We are now sending this. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's like upscale baby food in, a, in mm-hmm. a better crust. That's all it is. I would not throw my wife's baking uh, under yeah. the bus in a podcast. That's terrible. This, all, this is all going to get <laughs> cut, by the way. <laughs> You never know. Priya, what gets cut. don't cut. Lead with that. Lead with that, Priya. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, thanks a lot. Bye, guys. Right, thanks. thanks. Bye, guys. Later.